really good to be back with you. We um, spent, uh, we've been out of the country probably for about seven and a half weeks. Um, uh, was in Portugal for a period writing, and uh, so I've, I've endeavoured to write a book, and uh, John and Jonathan are looking at it because they're all the right words, but they're not necessarily all in the right order. So, <laughs> spent some time in America, went to Bethel, had such a great time there, really sensed the presence of God, and in the UK we've visited a few UK churches. And uh, I just want to say we have known God with us at every turn. His presence has been with us, just in the little and uh, the big things. Did God speak? Yeah, God has been speaking to us all the time. God is wanting to speak to us far more than we're prepared to listen. And it's just been encouraging, encouraging me to press on. I want to particularly thank uh, John, Jonathan, and Barry, who have made it possible for, uh, to give me space to do this. And I want to thank you as a church for allowing me and Annie to do that. So Annie at the moment is away in New Day. She came straight back. We came back and she went straight off to New Day. And her last words were to me, well, you don't need to text me. I don't want to hear from you um, this week, essentially. I think she's heard enough from me for the last three months. And she needed a bit of space. So uh, uh, they're coming back this afternoon. They've had a great time. And uh, we're so looking forward to going to West Point with you, um, with the Commission Churches uh, at the end of the month. I know there's about 160 of us going, really excited about that, really looking forward to what God's going to say to us as a church. So uh, if you haven't thought about coming, and I think there's probably still an opportunity to, to do that. So uh, about 160 of us going at the end of uh, a bank holiday weekend. It's going to be a great time to meet with God together. I know we took up an offering recently. I was away for that, so I haven't had the opportunity to give into it. And maybe you've not been around as well, and you'd like the opportunity to give into that as well. We take an offering with us to West Point, so if you uh, want to do that, there's an opportunity still for you to do that. So you just need to... uh, 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 write a check or uh, whatever gift you make. You just need to make clear that it's for West Point. We'll be doing that. Annie and I will be doing that. We so missed you. And uh, I'm so excited to be back. So this morning, we're going now, coming towards the end. We've got a couple of weeks left in in our series, Marks of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from Mark chapter 10. And um, it's verses 17 to 27. I'm going to read those in a moment. The words will come up on the screen behind me. And uh, we're going to see Jesus' encounter with one man. And the theme of this morning is one thing you lack. Let's pick up the story from Mark chapter 10. This is what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. I don't know, if, if, if that had been me answering it, I'd probably be saying, well, most of those I broke every day since I was a boy, badly behaved and whatever. But all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You know, as I was thinking about what God wanted to say to us today... My mind went back to an incident that happened more than 10 years ago. And uh, I met this guy, let's, uh, for argument's sake, let's call him Peter. Peter was depressed and desperate. He'd been married, but an affair had resulted in a painful divorce. And uh, he'd continued the relationship, was racked with guilt at the damage his actions had caused, especially to his children. I remember introducing him to Jesus, and he went on uh, with us in the church that I was in at the time to do an Alpha course, and he began to see that there was hope. And I remember one specific day asking him this question, what do you think Jesus is saying to you? And he said that he knew that he needed space from the relationship he was in. He knew knew that he needed to make a bit of a break to allow God to work in his life. We talked about it. I remember praying for him. He went away, but he couldn't or wouldn't do anything about it. Maybe he was just terrified of being alone. Over the coming months, we saw less of him. The last time I saw him, he knew that pursuing a relationship with Jesus meant facing up to the relational mess that he'd created and the guilt that was eating away at him. And he went away sad. I mulled over what happened around that time a lot. This incident that we've read this morning has similarities with that. You see, Mark introduces us to a man who seems to be the perfect seeker. Someone who is uh, 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 the sort of person we would want walking through the doors of this building every day. He was eager. He runs up to Jesus. He was humble at a surface level anyway. He openly falls on his knees. And and in Luke, the passage in Luke, the comparable passage in Luke, Luke tells us he was a ruler. This man demonstrates something here. He was respectful. He calls Jesus good teacher. I mean, it's even more commendable when you read that Matthew says that he was young. He was clearly intelligent. He's asking the right person the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He could have come nowhere better than to Jesus. We would love people like this walking through this building, into this building. He's the sort of person we would love to meet on the street or in a supermarket queue. I remember Pauline uh, at 
uh, introducing me to a lady that she'd met in a supermarket queue. And, and as she was talking to her in the supermarket queue, got the opportunity to share with her about Jesus and then led her to the Lord. And uh, she subsequently died and we did the funeral. But Audrey came to know the Lord. It was just a remarkable moment. It's the sort of incident that makes a day extraordinary. And here we have someone who is keen to become a disciple and get involved. And the icing on the cake is that he's rich. What an asset he's going to be to Jesus' ongoing ministry. How many times have I heard someone say something like that about someone who's wealthy or influential? Within a short period, most churches or Christian organizations would have made the man a trustee. You see, without asking too many questions, we easily slip into associating material and physical blessing as a sign of God's favor. To everyone's amazement, bar Jesus, it all unraveled in the space of minutes. The perfect seeker leaves sad. Everyone expected Jesus to embrace him with open arms. The disciples were shocked. So am I. It's shocking. Surely, Jesus, wouldn't you have done a little bit more to keep me? Why don't you just hang around with us for a few weeks? Just stay hanging around with the guys as we travel. And uh, I'd like to talk to you about a few things. It doesn't happen like that. It's shocking. It's a shocking moment. Jesus lets him go away sad. I have all sorts of questions. And as we unpack this story together this morning, let's be prepared for God to unsettle and challenge us. So what's going on? What's happening in this story? Well, one of the marks of Jesus is that he always focuses in on heart issues. He's not interested in papering over the cracks in our lives. We never get a there, there, oh, it'll be all right from Jesus. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us because he is the son of his father. He only does what he sees and hears his father saying. He only does what he sees his father doing. You see, we look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. Everything we say springs from our heart. That's what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You see, appearances can be deceptive. But Jesus isn't phased or fooled by the external packaging. Mark, whose gospel is this Gospel of Mark, it's commonly accepted that it's the, the source material for Matthew's gospel. So it's probably the earliest written material. Mark deliberately doesn't bother to tell us, like the other Gospels, that this man was young or a ruler. It's almost as if Mark wants to say, it's not just about the rich and the wealthy. This is about each and every one of you. And he wants to catch our attention. So here's the first thing. We need to avoid relying on on the wrong thing. Relying on the wrong thing. You see, this man comes to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, when you read through Jewish writings, the phrase good teacher wouldn't be a phrase they would ever use. It was tantamount to blasphemy because, as Jesus said, only God is good. They would never have used that phrase. So it's probably a little bit of flattery going on there. But bizarrely, this man got that bit right, even though he didn't know it. But in this question, we get the hint of the the problem, a first hint of the problem. What must I do? You see, he was trying to navigate his own way to God. While we were away, we've been, as I said, been out of the country for a long time doing a lot of driving. And uh, so I felt I needed an aid. So I bought a sat-nav rather than pay for it in a high car. I bought a sat-nav. And I don't know if you know, but you can get different voices on the sat-nav. And mine was called Serena. So Serena is... uh, And uh, Serena and I have had some difficult moments. (laughs) You see, I've been relying on Serena... The problem is, is Serena is always right. She, uh, she says, you have now arrived at your destination, and I'm going, no, we haven't. This, I know this is not the destination. We haven't arrived, but she's always right, and she doesn't listen. She goes on and on and on, and so there are moments when she's going, please, uh, next, uh, uh, come up this road 50 yards, turn right and turn the car around and go the other way. And I, I think we're not, that's not right. And we go a bit further and she keeps on and on and on and on. And on occasions, she gives me the quiet treatment. When I need to hear from her, she says nothing. <laughs> you see, sadly, the root of the problem is not changing the name, not getting another voice, not maybe getting an Annie or a John or a, because that's going to be the same thing. It's not going to make any difference. They won't listen to me either. (laughs) The root of the problem is me. Because I'm the one that puts the information in. I'm the one that sets the tone. I'm trying to navigate my own way I'm using. She's just, Serena's just a tool to help me get there. But I've set the tone. This man was following his own way. He was following the law, what he did to try and get to God. And here was his problem. You see, goodness was not principally something that he did. It was an inner quality. There needed to be a change in his heart. Otherwise, he was never going to make it. And Jesus is challenging us that we, uh, when we try to navigate our own way to God... You see, Jesus responds to his question with a question. He asks him if he knows the Ten Commandments, and then he summarizes the last six. So we, the bit passage we read, Jesus summarizes the last six of the commandments. And the reference there, he makes a reference to defrauding people. It's probably a reference to uh, an outworking of the Tenth Commandment. And the man says he's kept these ever since he was a boy. None of us are good judges of our own hearts. We need God's help. We need to be asking God, search me, try me. If there is any offensive way within me, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. We need God's help to understand our own hearts. And interestingly, Jesus has made no reference to the first ten commandments of the ten commandments which talk about our relationship with God. And here's the rub. 
Unless we love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, it's going to be impossible to love other people and go God's way. We're never going to satisfy the law and please God. You see, we live in a world which pursues goodness the wrong way. We're never going to get to God by being good enough. Going that way leads to a dead end, literally. Our only hope comes when we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. What about us? Are we going the right way? The disciples seem to go the wrong way regularly. There's a moment in Matthew chapter 20 when they get, they're all fussed about position and who's going to be the greatest. They're all about who's the most important, who's the most visible. What do we focus on? Do we focus on the outward appearance or the heart? Does image matter too much to us? We live in a day where image is everything. Wearing the right clothes, looking the right way. If so, we need to learn from Jesus. You see, the second thing that we see when we unpack this passage is, is that Jesus was loving despite everything. Jesus' attitude has always been and always will be come as you are, just as you are. He's not bothered about social status. He's not bothered about gender, employment, age, people's background. He welcomed lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, Roman soldiers, religious teachers, immigrants. It resulted in criticism, but Jesus wasn't in the slightest bit bothered about the stones and slurs thrown at him. And he's still the same. He never changes. God never changes. He wants us to come to him just as we are. And we need to bear a couple of things in mind. The first is that Jesus knew everything about the man when he came to him. We're told that he looked intently at him. We all view Jesus from a human perspective. We interpret him by our human understanding. But actually... We are like him a bit, but he is totally unlike us. All Jesus was God, the Son of God, completely God. He was completely man, but he was completely God. And so there's something about Jesus that is so different from us in so many different ways. And Jesus knew everything about this young man who came to him. He saw right into his heart. The Apostle John describes the resurrected and ascended Jesus as having eyes of blazing fire in Revelation chapter 1 verse 14. Jesus sees the attitudes and motives of every heart. Peter himself found out what that felt like. He's let Jesus down. He's, uh, he's, he's basically denied him three times. Jesus has said it was going to happen. Jesus had told him what was going to happen and then it happens. And Peter is, in this moment, he's standing in the courtyard and Jesus walks by. He's been taken away. And it says, Jesus looked at him, looked intently. And Peter knew what it felt like to have the gaze of Jesus looking into his heart, seeing him as he really was. And Jesus loved him 
despite what he saw. Loved him. Never stopped loving him. And he does the same for each and every one of us. That's wonderful news. He wasn't surprised or disappointed. Jesus knew this person inside out. This was exactly the sort of person Jesus came to save. Jesus saw his potential, all that he could be if he submitted us, uh, if he submit, this man submitted himself to God. God loves us. That's exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. He knew what the world was like. That's why he sent his son into darkness to, to save us, to bring us to him. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Mark says this. We may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves him. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they will only come to Christ. If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them. Let me read that again. It is not, if men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them and is not ready to save. There were moments when we were away. I mean, Annie, Annie's been on fire while we've been away. She's been stopping talking to people all over the place. And it's been a bit, I'm like, oh no, where's she going now? What's, who's she going to talk to? And there was a moment we were at this gas station. And um, she overhears, as I'm fiddling around uh, with a, putting gas in the car, she overhears someone talking and she hears this guy saying that he's going to commit suicide. I don't hear it. And then she, so we had a bit of kerfuffle about it. And, and then she just, goes, she just goes up to him and she just says, look, I just overheard you say this. I just want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. It's true. That guy may not feel like it's true, but it's true. It's the gospel. God loves people. God loved that guy, Nate, in that gas station just as much as he loves anybody else. God loved him. You see, the thing is though, Jesus loves everyone, but he won't let them stay as they are. He, you come as you are, but Jesus isn't, loves you so much he's not prepared to let you stay as you are. And so Jesus challenges the man that he lacks one thing. I mean, lacks one thing, he's got everything. He's got resources, he's got influence, he's got education. Yet even this guy sensed it wasn't quite enough for him to get to God. So he sought out Jesus. His mistake was he thought eternal life was determined by what he did. Jesus said, something's lacking. In fact, he points to three things. He talks to him about things to sell, things to give to the poor, and someone to follow. Needs to be a follower of Jesus. But all together, all of what Jesus was saying, he identified what was lacking. This man was rich with lots of possessions. Jesus wasn't interested in his money. He wanted his heart. Jesus faced him with a great command to love God with all he had. That's his challenge to us. How can God be at the center of our lives if the throne room of our heart is full of other things? There was no room in this man's heart. His love of wealth and riches took the place should, that was only reserved 
for loving God. Despite Jesus' challenge, he wasn't prepared to let go. And he went away sad. He wanted salvation on his own terms. Jesus made it clear there is only one way. God must be everything to us. We must relinquish self-control of our lives. The trouble is, and I'm not you, but we keep taking back control. It's though, a little, let me give you a little example of what it's like. Annie's driving the car and I'm sitting in in her little uh, blue Fiat 500 and it's Casanova blue and we're driving away. She's driving and, and, and then I start... Oh, don't, don't do that. You, you don't you want to... And in the end, she says, stop, who's driving? I, I, I'm, in, I'm in passenger seat, but I want to take control. I want to, I want to have my say. I want, no, 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 don't, we need to, don't, don't do that. Can I turn that? I'm fiddling with everything. I'm trying to give her directions. We are like that. We, we give God control and then we, we slowly try and take it back and, oh, let me do it. I, I can do that. I, we're trying to sort things out ourselves. And that's especially true if we're not sure that God really wants the best for our lives. When circumstances don't seem to work out in the way that we want them to, we start to take back control. God will be no add-on to our lives. Tim Keller says this, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into the ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Who or what is on the throne of our life? Do we lack one thing? Maybe like the man in the story, it's money and possessions. It's not wrong to have money. That wasn't the point of what Jesus was saying. It's, the problem is the love of money. Jesus was clear we can't serve both God and mammon. We can't serve both God and money. Is that what's on the throne of your life? Are we more bothered about pensions and shares or salaries and... It's not about having lots of money. Money can be, on the, God, can be the, the throne of your life even if you don't have much money because you just want it. It can be the driver for you. Maybe we're like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. For her, relationships was everything. Jesus comes to her and uh, he says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. He sees into her heart. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with it now isn't your husband. For her, relationships were everything. That was the throne of her life. She gave her a sense of value, of love. Jesus was saying, no, no. God needs to be on the throne of your life. She goes away and something happens. And she comes back and she tells people, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus is on the throne of her life. Maybe... We're full of pride like Saul. Paul in Acts 26 says, I was convinced I should. Paul was full of hubris, pride. Pride can dominate our lives. You know, 
We have too many armchair experts. Armchair experts are always right, but they rarely do anything themselves. They're typically cynical and critical. They rarely talk to the people that they're actually talking about. They'd rather talk about them behind their back. Us, what are we like? Do we dissect Sunday meetings over lunch, the worship, the PA, contributions, preaching? It's, an easy, it's easy to be an armchair expert. I know, I've been one. Theodore Roosevelt said this, It's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbled or how the doer of deeds might have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who, if he wins, knows the triumph of high achievement, and who, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat." You see, if God is on the throne of our life, our life will be marked by grace. We'll be appreciative and grateful. We'll honor those who take part in the arena. We'll take every opportunity to encourage. We'll be kind and respectful to each other. We'll consider others as being better than ourselves. We are to be a church marked by grace. Those in the arena need to invite feedback, though. We need to be open to receive feedback and receive it with humility, especially when it isn't what we want to hear. Maybe we're like Martha, who lost intimacy with Jesus because of work and busyness. She was marked with frustration, irritation, and relational breakdown. She was just so busy. So easily marks our lives. We're busy, we're frustrated, we take it out at home, we take it out on people closest to us. If God is at the center of our lives and on the throne of our life, we should be dominated by peace. God is always peaceful in himself. God is never overworked or stressed. A.W. Tozer, I read this this week, he said this, God never hurries. I just saw that. God never hurries. He wants us to learn from him. He wants to be in control of our lives. And once he is, it starts to change. We start to respond differently. Now, these things don't happen overnight. It isn't just like that. It's an onward process. It's a daily process. You see, Jesus let the man go because he loved him so much. He wasn't prepared to allow him to stay the same. Who knows what happened to him? Who knows whether he subsequently came back and changed? We we don't know. We don't know that. We can't presume anything. But Jesus loved him so much, he wasn't prepared to let him stay the same. Jesus loves you and loves me so much, he doesn't want us to stay the same. Is it, 
Is there, is there hope for us? Yes. God makes all things possible. God makes all things possible. All things. There have been, been moments while I was away at the beginning. 18 years of, of being in church leadership. And there were moments where in the first weeks I'm, oh, what's going on, what's happening? All that's going on in my heart and my head. And I felt God time after time say to me, who's in charge? Whose church is it? Who's in control? It's not you. Let me on the throne. And I've found God speak to me time and time again. Have I said it? Do you trust me? God is faithful. He doesn't do everything the way I want him to do it. Because he's God and I'm not. And he knows better than I do. And so sometimes things don't work out in the way we plan. But he is still on the throne. He is still God. He is still in control. And he still loves me and he's still for me. And the same is true for you. Jesus loved this man. His love was perfect. Letting him go was the hardest thing to do. But you see, love has to be given, but it also has to be received. You see, love being imposed is a contradiction in terms. God's love is freely given, no strings attached. God doesn't love us because of anything we've done. In fact, quite the opposite. It's, it's not based on how we perform. If that was the case, there would be no need of grace. Paul makes it clear it's by grace we're saved. And yet, just as love is freely given, we need to freely receive it and embrace it. And the proof we've done, we've done it is we love in the same way the Father's loved us. The love of God outworks in our lives. And this is what it says in, J.B. Phillips says in of 1 John chapter 4. God is love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother before his eyes. How can he love the one beyond his sight? How powerful is that? It's humanly impossible. What chance is there of being saved? And saved is, uh, uh, the Bible says we have been saved, we are presently being saved, and one day we will be saved. So it's a process, it's an ongoing thing. How on earth is this possible for us to live like that? We can't do it ourselves. That's absolutely true. But with God, all things are possible because God comes by his spirit and changes us on the inside and changes our heart. If we allow him on the throne of our heart, he will change everything. It won't stay the same. Are you prepared for change? As we draw to a close, the searching gaze of Jesus examines our hearts. It's all about relationship with him. How do we need to respond? Maybe for you it's been about the externals. You look at, it's very easy to look at the externals of things. Maybe you do it in your own life. Maybe you do it in other people's lives. You know, half the time in life I wouldn't write the script. I wouldn't write the script. I wouldn't write it like that. But God has. And I've got to trust him. 
Maybe it's money like the rich young ruler. Maybe wealth is a big issue for you. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe you know that you desperately want to be loved and you're, you're always looking for pe- your sense of value and importance and security is from love of other people. Actually, God says, I want to be on the throne. I want you to get your love and value and acceptance from me. Maybe, you, maybe you're one of those armchair experts. I tell you, it's a terrible thing. God doesn't want you to be like that. Maybe it's work and busyness. Dominating your lives. God doesn't want it to be like that. It's time to do business with God. Let's finish with this. A.W. Tozer says this. This, what shall we do, is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he is a usurper and sits on a stolen throne. This is true repentance. Without it, all our good deeds are not good at all and literally stink in the nostrils of God. Only when he has restored his stolen throne to God are his works acceptable. This morning we're going to respond to God. We're going to break bread in a moment. We're going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing a song of response. And this song is, is about Jesus being the king of our hearts. And as we sing this song, this is a moment where we can respond to him. We can say, Lord, this, I know there's some areas of my life some areas of my life that I've been battling with where I've just been holding on to stuff where you've not been in control maybe this morning you've come and you've you've never given your life to Jesus and you're asking "What, what do I need to do well you need to give your life to him this is an opportunity for you to say Jesus I want you to be on the throne of my life thank you that you died for me My past is wiped away because of what you did on the cross for me. Your blood was shed for me, and I can know God. I want to know the Father in heaven through you. That can be yours today.